Lesson 23 finds us finally in chapter 5 of Galatians. And, uh, yeah, it sounds like you guys are about as happy as I am to get done. <laughs> but, you know, the good news is, is we're through the worst of the minefield that is the book of Galatians, you know. And actually, it's a wonderful letter, but what makes it such a minefield is the way it's been twisted and taught. Because if you listen to the way it's been twisted and taught, it's barely understandable. And it's foreign, really, to the rest of Scripture. While we're through the worst of it, there are a few hard verses that still remain. And the first three for today are some of those. It says this way. It says this in verse 1. It is for freedom that Messiah has set us free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Messiah will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole of the law. The common understanding of this verse is that we're free from the Torah and let us stand on our freedom. That has come to mean that we can freely violate God's law. People use this verse to raise themselves above God's law and any correction for their violations. If you try to speak to them even about gross sin, they'll declare their freedom from the law. And I have an example that I used before, but I've never really found a better example, so I'll use it again today. If we just read a little bit farther in Galatians, verse 19, it says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Adultery, impurity, and debauchery. Here Paul tells us that adultery is of the sinful nature. And if we look to the words of Yeshua, he says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness commits adultery. So this is, this is a no-brainer. Adultery is a gross sin. And if you just leave your wife because you find someone you think is more attractive, then you've committed adultery. Even if you give her a divorce, you've still committed adultery. And yet once I heard this minister tell me that he had left his wife and his children for a younger and prettier woman because the Spirit of the Lord had told him that this was his soulmate. And there was no correcting him because he was standing firm in his freedom. He said the Spirit told me and that trumped anything else I or the Word of God had to say. Because he was living by the Spirit. And I never doubted that he was living by the Spirit. The only question I had was what spirit was he living by? Because it certainly wasn't the Spirit of God. God doesn't tell you to sin. Spirit of God doesn't tell you to sin. We know that he can't mean Torah because if we just read a little bit farther to verse 22, he makes it really clear. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control against such things. There is no law. And so we can rule out that interpretation. But what are we really free from then? 
Well, this is one of those chapter breaks that's really unfortunate because it leads us to believe that this is a new thought when it's not. Our answer to the freedom that Messiah has set us free lies in the previous chapter. We're free from the slavery he spoke of in chapter 4. This is the context. Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So non-Jews have been set free by Messiah from becoming halakhically Jewish. This process that makes you part of the Sinai covenant and responsible to live as the rest of the Jewish people by the written Torah and by the oral Torah, the customs of the Jewish people. Until Messiah came, it was the only way for you to become part of the people of God, part of Israel. That was your salvation, according to the rabbis. They looked at this verse in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, that says, then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. You see, the rabbis interpreted this to mean that all Israel was righteous. And if you want to be righteous and part of the world to come, then you had to belong to Israel. And so if you were from the nations, you had to become a proselyte in the prescribed manner of the rabbis to be a part of Israel. It's too bad those rabbis really didn't understand the whole of chapter 60. Because chapter 60 begins this way. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You see, Messiah is the light of the world and he's the radiance of God's glory. You see, this whole chapter, if you read it, is dependent upon Messiah's coming. He's the seed that will bless the nations, all the nations. Amen? But I digress. But what I really want you to understand from this is one from the nations to be blessed through process that they felt that one from the nations had to be blessed through proselytism to Israel. And I said a few weeks ago, Paul believes there's a greater community being formed. And it's a community made up of all nations, including Israel. The promise said all nations of the earth will be blessed by the seed of Abraham. And all nations include Israel. Listen to what Yeshua said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He says, Then Yeshua came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Yeshua sends out his disciples in fulfillment of this prophecy to make disciples of all the nations. And again, it includes Israel. And how do we know that? Well, simple. They went to the nation of Israel first. Messiah Yeshua is forming a kingdom that's larger than the nation of Israel itself. But with with which the nation of Israel is an important part. And what he's forming is the Messianic kingdom. His kingdom. Yeshua tells us about this assembly in Matthew chapter 16. He says this. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Yeshua replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. 
But this was not revealed to you by, by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my assembly and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. First, note that I changed the word church to assembly as it should be translated. Second, Yeshua says, the knowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, which can only come through the revelation of the Spirit of God, is what he will build his assembly, his kehilat, upon. He's not starting something new that replaces Israel, as many of the church have thought. What he is referring to is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham by being part of Yeshua's kehilat, Yeshua's assembly. This assembly at the end of days is called the Messianic kingdom, the world to come, the kingdom of heaven. And as we have seen, non-Jews do not have to be circumcised to be a part. I don't read that in the words of Yeshua or the disciples anywhere. What I do read is that non-Jews become part the same way everybody else does by faith in the seed of Abraham. You see, Messiah has set us free, set the Galatians free from becoming part of Israel because he's made them part of something greater of which Israel itself must be a part. You know, whenever I ask someone, tell me, who is Israel? I seldom hear the correct answer. You see, the correct answer lies in Jacob receiving the name Israel. Listen to what it says in verse chapter 32, verse 27 of Genesis. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed have overcome. You see, you become the true Israel when you struggle with men and God and overcome. And you overcome through faith in the promise given to Abraham. So we could say Israel is made up of a lot of Israels. Those who have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Right? So Paul says, stand firm then and let do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So what does he mean by slavery? A yoke of slavery. Well, again, it's commonly thought by the church that it is the Torah. But as we've seen, that we can't, uh, that can't be. All we have to do to find out again is go back to chapter 4 because he told us what slavery was. First in verse 8, he said, Formerly, when you did not know God and you were slaves to those who by nature were not gods, but now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to the weak, miserably, miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? So first he says to the Galatians, you who are formerly pagans, don't allow yourself to be enslaved by the worship of idols and probably more specifically, the emperor worship of Rome. And then in verse 24, he says this, these things may be taken figuratively for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Sinai and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. You see, Paul has already defined slavery for us. The yoke of slavery. 
And again, as I said before, slavery to Paul is slavery. Error is error. Be it Jewish error in regard to the Torah or Roman error and paganism. It's still error. Being under the whole of the Torah, both the oral and doing things that the Torah does not require of you because you feel you have to is slavery. Being under the rule and worshiping the Roman emperor is slavery. The Torah, because of Israel turning down relationship with God, placed itself under the rule of men. And of course, being under the rule of the Roman emperor was slavery as well, under the rule of men. Messiah has set us free from those things. Why? So that we might serve God. So Paul says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Messiah will be of no value to you. This is a perfect example of what I've been saying all along. This is Paul's circumcision is Paul's shorthand. He says, if you let yourselves be circumcised, the word circumcised is shorthand for this whole process of becoming a proselyte. If not, if not, then Messiah is of no value to a lot of men in this country who got circumcised when they were little for medical reasons. So you can see that it has to be shorthand. And another thing, gals, the word, well, well, while circumcision applies to men, it doesn't leave you off the hook either. Anyone who allows themselves to put their confidence in proselytism or anything else other than the justification that comes from Messiah Yeshua and only Messiah Yeshua, if you do that, then Messiah has become of no value to you. And I want to make it clear, while it's not clear in the language of Paul, does support equal pay for women. You see, if these non-Jews put their confidence in what the influencers are telling them and obey them and make a vow, because that's what they'd be doing, making a vow to live as a Jew, then they will be placing themselves once again under the yoke of men and Messiah and the freedom he has given you will be of no value to you. Does that mean... As many in the church believe that if the Galatians go ahead and are circumcised, they'll lose their salvation. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the freedom that Messiah has brought to you will be destroyed by you if you place yourself again under the yoke of men. Which is slavery. And what is Yeshua's yoke? Easy. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light because he's pulling with you. So finally, Paul says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole of the law. Well, we all know how this one's been interpreted. The whole of the law is the Torah, the Old Testament. And in a sense, you know, it is correct. That is, if you understand what is meant by the whole of the law in first century years, in previous weeks we covered how a non-Jew living outside the land of Israel is not obligated to keep the majority of the commands of the law, by the law. 
The fact is the Torah is quite specific about what is required of a natural born and an alien. For example, think about it. The Torah gives many of its 613 commands specifically to the priests and some others to the king. The Israelites themselves are not responsible for those commands. So the point I'm trying to make is the Torah is specific about who's responsible for certain instructions within the community. Well, the same way it's the same way it gives commands that are for that are Israelite specific as well. Let's look at one. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. This is a command given specifically to Israel. Does that mean a non-Jew cannot do this? No, it just means you're not obligated to do this. As long as you're not doing it for justification and you're deriving some benefit from keeping the command, that's no problem. But the point I want to make is non-Jews are not obligated to keep this command given to the Jewish people. Let's look at another one because this is different. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 12 says, Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood. Nor may an alien living among you eat blood. Or how about this one? Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you are to labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. These are not only for the sons of Israel, but what does it say? The aliens. Guess who the aliens are? Everybody else. Right? So what does Paul mean by the whole of the Torah? If you're a non-Jew and you vow... To live as a Jew, you'll be obligated to live as a Jew. Right? You'll place yourself under a vow to keep all the commands given to the natural born. That's what they're doing. Things you are not responsible to keep, you will now be obligated for. If you vow, then you must do. The Torah is clear. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 23 says. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you. And you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whoever, Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made a vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. You see, there's the problem Paul's addressing. If you vow, then you have to do. So you go from what is responsible for the alien to do to what is responsible for the natural born citizen to do. And not just that, but you'll also be responsible for the way they do it. Enter the oral Torah and all the additional laws of the sages. These additions were not and are not distinguished from the law by the Jewish people. They're all part of the law. You ask somebody reading the Talmud what he's doing, he's going to tell you he's studying Torah. Well, I thought you were reading the Talmud. We've covered these things before, but I want to show you how a vow comes into the picture because that's what this is really all about. 
So understand that if if they do not convert and make a vow to live uh, live as a Jew as the Jewish people, they're responsible for many of the commands of the Torah itself. However, if they do, they will be taking on a heavy load, right? So he says this: You have fall, you have been severed from Messiah. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So the first thing we need to note, he says, those who seek to be justified by the law. Remember, we spent almost an entire lesson showing that the law was not given for justification. No man will ever be justified by keeping the law. The fact is, the, the fact is even though it's possible to live blamelessly, by the law. We know that because Paul told us in regard to the law, he was blameless. Not sinless, mind you. Not ever unclean, mind you. But blameless. You can live blameless because the Torah gives you a way to mend, for your, mend your transgressions in the offerings. But the offerings, while they maintained right standing for you in the community of Israel, could never mend the eternal separation from God that we have all undergone. That's why Hebrews said, if they could, would they not have ceased to be offered? The blood of goats and bulls could not mend your separation, could not accomplish the eternal cleansing for the uncleanness brought about by sin. The only thing that could cleanse men eternally is faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah Yeshua. So Paul says, if you seek to be justified by any other means, you have fallen from grace. Your faith is destroyed as you have put your confidence in something else other than the eternal redemption that God offers for working out your salvation. You're trying to work out your salvation on your own. And I love it. He says, you've fallen from grace. You've been severed from grace. And this is kind of, you can take this a multifaceted statement. It's a metaphor, really, that begs to be understood in the light of Isaiah's words in chapter 40. And I want to read James Dunn's commentary on this. He says this way, Like a withered flower falling off its stem to the ground, or like a ship failing to hold the course which leads to safety and falling away to disaster. God's grace in Messiah is like the stem which supports the flower and through the life-sustaining sustenance flows or like the channel that leads to safety between the rocks of disaster, a course from which they were in danger of being driven by dangerous currents and crosswinds. And notice that he quotes Peter here in his commentary on this passage. 1 Peter chapter chapter 1, verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Messiah... A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. But was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God. Who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves. Obeying the truth. So that you have sincere love for your brothers. A love Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable. Through living, through the living and enduring word of God. 
For all men are like grass. And all their glory like flowers in the field. Grass withers and flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. I love this. Paul says, before the creation of the world, he was chosen. He was chosen to restore man before the age even began. And guess what? It also means he started to form this community long before he appeared in the first century. The community that Messiah is forming is nothing new. He was chosen before the age began and was revealed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, among others. It was he who was the one that Jacob wrestled with. Listen to what it says in verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it's because I saw God's face to face and yet my life was spared. He wrestled with Yeshua and his life was spared and he was given the new name Israel. And we know that the assembly began long before the first century because of Yeshua's words. In Matthew chapter 8 verse 10 he says, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, this really sums up what Paul is saying because of the centurion's what? Circumcision? Oh, no, no, no. Because of his great faith. Because of his great faith. He and others will sit at a feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This uncircumcised Gentile will be sitting at a table in the kingdom of heaven with others from the east and the west. Circumcised and uncircumcised, male and female, all one in Messiah Yeshua. Notice what he he says. So your faith and hope are in God. You have purified yourself by obeying the truth. For you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable. All of this because of faith and hope in Messiah's love for you. Now, if you vow, if you by making a vow, seek those things by some other means other than the faith and hope in Messiah, then you have become Like the text says, all men who are like grass and their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. You see, you could say this. You Galatians have fallen from grace. You're like a flower plucked from the stem by the influencers and left lying on the ground to wither and die. When he says you're seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Remember our definition of grace? We looked it up toward the start of this whole thing. I put it up here again. And I want you to pay attention to the bold. Especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. You see, you've fallen from grace. You've lost the spirit of God directing and influencing your life. And so you no longer reflect the purposes of God in or by your life. That's how Paul put it. 
But, you know, I think if he'd have had the Messiah's words written down at that time, because he didn't have that time, as we do today, and everyone was familiar with Messiah's words as we are today, he probably would have said, you foolish Galatians, have you not heard the words of the master? Did he not say no one can serve two masters, either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other? And again, he said, you are not to be called teacher, for you have one teacher who is Messiah. Messiah is your teacher. Your teacher, that is, if you don't go looking for these men for your redemption. But if you do, then, as Paul said, Messiah is of no value to you. That's why, you know, people... Say, why do you always fight against this two-house thing? Why, do you, why are you so fierce on this two-house thing? Well, if you seek to become Israel through your flesh, if you seek to spend your time searching through your ancestry, then obviously, what are you doing? You're looking for something more. You're looking for something more than Messiah Yeshua. And you're wasting your time on what is irrelevant. Because Messiah, by His love, And his gift to you has already made you part of something greater. And don't be fooled by these two house people anymore. They don't, they don't always call themselves two house. Maybe they call themselves the restoration of Israel or the restoration of the kingdom or the restoration of David's tabernacle. But you know what I say? A rose by any other name? Right? The point is, beware. Here's the point. Beware of those who try to remove your faith in Messiah Yeshua and replace it with anything, and I mean anything, of this world. Amen?